When making a decision, we often find ourselves stuck between choosing one option over another, creating a vicious cycle that limits our capabilities and creates consistent tension. But what if there were a better way? Hey, it's Dustin, and you're listening to The Burleson Box. On today's episode, I'm honored to speak with Wendy Smith, author of Both and Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems. Wendy Smith is the Dana J. Johnson Professor of Management and Faculty Director of the Women's Leadership Initiative at the Lerner College of Business and Economics, University of Delaware. She earned her PhD in Organizational Behavior at Harvard Business School where she began her intensive research on strategic paradoxes, how leaders and senior teams effectively respond to contradictory yet interdependent demands. Working with executives and scholars globally, she received the Web of Science Highly Cited Research Award in 2019, 2020, and 2021 for being among the 1% most cited researchers in her field and received the Decade Award in 2021 from the Academy of Management Review, for the most cited paper in the past 10 years. Her work has been published in such journals as Academy of Management Journal, Administrative Science Quarterly, Harvard Business Review, Organization Science, and Management Science. She has taught at the University of Delaware, Harvard University, and the University of Pennsylvania Wharton while helping senior leaders and middle managers all over the world address issues of interpersonal dynamics, team performance, organizational change, and innovation. Wendy lives in Philadelphia with her husband, three children, and the family dog. I'm so excited to welcome Wendy Smith to the program today inside another episode of The Burleson Box. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com. Hi, everyone. It's Dustin Burleson. I'm so honored to have on the program today, Wendy Smith. Wendy, thanks for being here. Thanks, Dustin. Thanks for having me. What inspired you to write a book specifically about embracing creative tensions? That seems like a really, really complex topic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, thank you. And I was in part inspired because I and my colleague, Marianne Lewis, who wrote the book with me, have been surrounded by an amazing group of colleagues who have been researching this topic. So our goal was to take an idea that has been so instrumental in the research that we do, but also so helpful in our own personal lives and try and make it palatable, if you will, make it accessible to a broader audience. 
can we go back in time? Because your research really is pioneering. I think there was some, if I understand correctly, there was some research in the 70s and 80s on paradox and organization theory, but you brought it back to the forefront in a big way. What Take listeners back to what, what did we used to think about organization theory and, and how has your research changed that? Yeah, thank you. There were When I got started, there were a lot of people who told me not to do this research. Don't go there. Um, the, the core idea, just to give your listeners a sense of what we're talking about, the big idea here is that we tend to, we face lots and lots of tensions in our lives, lots of competing demands, whether it's what we should eat for breakfast or how we should structure our organizations and our strategies and how we should think about our um, competing demands in the leadership that we do. It's not if we face tensions, but how. And uh, for a long time and still today, the way that we teach leaders to think about competing demands is to pull them apart, make a clear choice, and be really consistent in that choice. We call that either-or thinking. Uh, We suggest that that is limited at best or detrimental at worst, and we can talk about why. But this idea of both-and thinking as an alternative rests on this concept of paradox, And Dustin, I'll just say very briefly, one of the things that I loved in the book and um, the chapter that didn't get published really says, you know, this is a concept that we have almost rediscovered in organizational theory, but uh, it's a concept that comes from 2,500 years ago. We're drawing on Buddhist philosophy. We're drawing on Greek philosophy. We're drawing on ideas that popped up around the world around 500 B.C., and bringing that back into the conversation about how we now think about organizations and leadership. So it is both um, something that we are engaging more recently now, but something that really we are standing on the shoulders of giants from a very long history. And I want to highlight for the listeners that that research, your research, is actually the most cited in your field over the last decade. So I want to encourage the, the residents listening in medical and dental school if someone tells you don't go there with your research, Wendy's an example. <laughs> you can go there and do some really cool stuff. So I love that. It's where, usually where the best uh, and most interesting answers come from. So thanks for uh, not listening to whatever advisors told you not to go there because it has transformed uh, really management theory. And I was, I'm curious, what was that like to do? I know we're kind of on a tangent. What was that like to do research that really everyone kind of told you, like, don't go there? And did anything surprise you in, in the process of then working with big companies like IBM and, and and other examples we'll talk about in the book? Well, um, what encouraged me was that the more I talked about paradox, the more I talked about both and the more that people said, oh, my gosh, yes. I see this. I get this. This is the world that I live in. So that was encouraging. And in fact, when you asked the question, what uh, inspired us to write the book for so long, Marianne and I were having this conversation with colleagues about how we needed to move from either or to both and. And then we saw this explosion of people talking about the both and. We see it in our some of our, some, not all, of our politicians. We see it in leaders talking about both and. There's consulting companies that talk about how leaders need to live in paradox. And so we've seen this progression of conversation around moving from either or to both and. So then the question became, how? How do we do this? How do we shift in our thinking? Because it's it's sounds so easy. And as soon as you peel back 
the curtain, if you will, it's com it's complex and it, it's um, it's emotionally hard. It is cognitively hard. It's hard to do in a group and in a team. It's hard when you're leading an organization. So how can we create some tools that help people get there better? Yeah, you've brilliantly identified some patterns that emerge when navigating these paradoxes. But I just want to highlight for listeners because I see this. I saw it on our own business before we exited through private equity. Like often in our mission statements, we have paradox, right? We're saying like we want to maximize shareholder value, but we also want to provide great customer service or we want to be competitive, but we also want to, you know, do good by the environment and social justice. Like there's all these paradoxes and even the mission we set out as as organizations. I just thought it was fascinating that we're finally waking up to it. Uh, you are way ahead of the curve. So can we talk about uh, those patterns that emerge? You talk about them in the book uh, and they often lead to vicious cycles when we start to navigate some of these. And maybe an example, I'd see this a lot with our members is trying to be really efficient in clinical practice, but also flexible and provide customized treatment for every patient. What what are some of those trends that, that you've discovered? Yeah. Um, what we find here's what we find. It, first, I, I love the examples that you're giving because the one of the things that I do when I do workshops with leaders, with uh, owners, with business owners, is start by asking people what some of the challenges that they're facing. And as soon as we talk about those challenges, we can then look underneath those challenges and say, okay, what are the competing demands? And notice that those competing demands, and, and this is what we mean by paradox, those competing demands are bumping up against one another. They're creating this tug of war. They're, they feel like a lot of internal tension. But if we look at them more closely, they're also interdependent with one another. You need them both. So in organizations, it's things like if you're going to be a small entrepreneurship and you're going to try and scale up, you both need that energy, that entrepreneurial energy that creates the enthusiasm of we're trying something new, we're doing new things, we're exploring new opportunities. And you need the stable practices that allow you to be more efficient and to be more organized and to be more planful. So you, and you both need to be emergent in your thinking and you need to be more structured in your thinking. You need to be stable and change. You need to think about how you can be big and small or to your point. How do you think about uh, who your clients are and what their needs are and how to provide the best customer service and at the same time worry about cost efficiencies? So these things bump up against one another in a small moment in time, but in the long in the big picture, in the long run, you need both. And what we find is that because our brains want to make a quick decision, when we when we're facing these kinds of decisions, they open up all kinds of uncertainty. We don't like uncertainty. I like to say that if we want to remind ourselves that we don't like uncertainty, we can just go right back to March 2020 when <laughs> there was a ton of uncertainty and all we wanted was clear decisions and spaces that there weren't clear answers and clear decisions. So we don't like uncertainty. What we do in the face of these decisions is try and impose a certain amount of clarity, certainty, and consistency by making a decision and going forward. But as you say, they lead to these detrimental patterns. So um, I'll just say very briefly, the first of these patterns is we make a decision, we get stuck, and we can't shift our point of view. So for any of your listeners that are small and looking to grow large, uh, one place you could see yourself getting stuck is in that entrepreneurial, small, uh, organizational patterns and as soon as you start to grow, it's hard to pull out of that and be more structured and um, uh, 
uh, efficient and, and planful in your organization, as I was saying before. Or it might be, and actually a colleague of mine did some research around uh, veterinarians who own small practices and this cost versus care tension. It might be that you see yourself as the person who's always providing superior customer service and 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 that's amazing, but then you get stuck in that and always, you know, your customers end up or your clients in this case end up waiting in the waiting room for so long because you're spending so much time with each client that you actually aren't uh, getting and moving along quickly enough. And so we go down one path thinking that this is the way that we are and these are our, this is our identity and this is our approach. And we end up losing or getting down a detrimental path where we can't switch. So we call that the rabbit hole. And then briefly, I'll just say the other two patterns. And again, we can unpack this more, but often what happens is we go down a rabbit hole. We focus on one point of view. It's time to switch. And we totally make the opposite switch. And we call this the wrecking ball because you end up overcorrecting. You throw out the good with the bad. And I like to say that uh, the wrecking ball, if anyone's ever been on a diet, they know what this is like. You're disciplined, you're disciplined, you're disciplined. You end up having a croissant one morning because they look so good and that's it. You throw out the discipline. You just sort of you know, move into, okay, everything's off the table at this point. Um, and, and the third pattern, and maybe it's the most pernicious, is that when we tend to be in either or mindset, we tend to then reinforce we're right, we we. Uh, surround ourselves by others that are that are similar to us. And then when we are in confrontation or in relationship with someone who has a different point of view, if we're right, they must be wrong. And we get into these conflicts that we call trench warfare because the image is that we dig ourselves deeper into our own trenches, surround ourselves by people who agree with us, and and sort of shoot out at the other side without really taking the time and um, and really deeply understanding the other side. It's so good. And thank you for using these, th- this terminology. It helps readers like me remember, cause I love now like moving forward. I love that you use mules and tightrope walkers. <laughs> it's, it's, it gives me a crystal clear picture of how to navigate some of this. Can we, can we talk about that? You know, what is creative integration? What is consistent and consistency and why should we pay attention to this? Yes. Uh, as you had mentioned, I had started studying this at IBM, and I was looking at how the leaders of these teams were navigating an ongoing and persistent challenge around innovation. And again, as you were saying earlier, organizational theory, my colleagues, uh, people would look at the innovation challenge and say, okay, the problem is, is that we get stuck in the present and in an inertia of what we do. How do we push out of that so that we can experiment, explore, and do things that are new. And it was sort of framed as you got to rip the Band-Aid, move to the new world really quickly so you don't get stuck in the old world. That's not the challenge that the IBM senior leaders that I was studying were facing. The challenge that they were facing was that they had to explore, experiment, try new things, change, and at the same time had to manage their existing customers. And they're, you know, and had millions, billions of dollars wrapped up in their existing clients. And so they had to live in this world of both innovating, changing, trying new things, experimenting, and maintaining their existing world and their existing operations along the way. And um, what I thought was that the great leaders who could live in, so, so the first piece of this, just to say, was 
moving away from it's one or the other into both. So what I thought was that the great leaders who did both, you know, the, the sort of classic idea of doing both is that there's a win-win out there, that there is like this creative integration that is able to bring together their old and their new into some ideal, you know, synthesis, the Hegelian synthesis. And that's what we call the mule because the mule is one of the oldest living hybrids that we as humans have been breeding for millennia. And it's stronger than a horse, smarter than a donkey, bring it together. You've got a stronger, stronger, smarter uh, thing, uh, animal. And uh, these win-wins happen. They happen sometimes. But what I was finding when I was studying this with IBM is that they didn't happen as often as I was expecting. And that great teams who were in the long term, living into the both and being able to live into their today and their tomorrow, their existing world and their new world, were doing something different. What they were doing is that they were considering each of their decisions as one part of a broader portfolio composite of decisions over time. And so they were looking out into the future and saying, okay, so long term, we both need to bring our existing customers along. So we need to be able to attend to them today and we need to be changing and moving. And so they were making decisions that were making these sort of what we call micro shifts or these small changes between sometimes investing in their existing product and sometimes investing in their new product. The issue was, was that they were not, or the, the companies, the sorry, the, the leaders that were not doing this well we're making these big swings to focus on the future and forget the, the present, or that we're really stuck in the present and couldn't focus on the future. The ones that were doing this well were making these sort of small shifts. And that's what we call tightrope walking, because the idea is that a tightrope walker looks out to the future. They're never fully balanced on the tightrope. They're always balancing by making these micro oscillations along the way. And that's how the leaders were navigating the both. And, you know, I, I like to, uh, for, for some people, the, the, the challenge of work-life balance is really salient in this space. Um, because in the work-life balance challenge, it's rare that we find this like ideal work and life come together. You know, it's like take your kids to work day and, and show your kids what work is. And there's this ideal win-win. But those moments are rare most of the time, what we're doing is this tightrope walking where, you know, tonight I am staying late at work because I have deadlines or I have, you know, late night uh, patients or whatever it might be. And, but tomorrow I'm home and having family dinner. And it's that micro shifting along the way that can be challenging, but that enables us in the big picture to say, I am accommodating both, just not at every moment and with every decision. It's so smart. Any did you see any downsides to staying on the tightrope too long? Any burnout, or were they well-adjusted leaders who were able to still play the mule role from time to time? Yeah, well, that is a good point, which is that the mules come up on the tightrope. So yep. indeed, <laughs> that that does happen. I think the downside is that it's not easy. I mean, living on the tightrope requires ongoing. Uh, challenge, you know, uh, somebody said to us, well, you know, standing is the same thing. You're never really fully balanced. You know, you're always kind of making these shifts and that's true. And so if you want to think about it as standing, that's great. 
And I think we use the tightrope metaphor to remind ourselves that it's not easy. You know, other people use the juggling plates metaphor or what have you. You're, you're, it, it does feel like sometimes this all comes crashing down on you and it's hard to do. And that's where being in community and having other people remind you of the benefits of the both and and remind you of the value of living into this space is useful. I love that you brought up work-life balance because I think everyone, I know everyone listening, if they're honest, struggles with that and moving from an either or to hopefully some version of both and. And you provide really great tools in the book. And again, for readers like me, you've made them A, B, C, and D. So I'm going to talk about some of the tools in your paradox system because it's really brilliant. Uh, can we talk about the first one, shifting assumptions and adopting a certain mindset and why that's so hard? Yes. Well, first, I just have to say, um, when we do workshops and workshops for companies, and I say to people, well, what's the tension that you're facing? Um, what I find is that often people will say work-life balance. And here I am thinking, well, you know, what's the tensions that you're facing at work? Because you're bringing me in to do a workshop about work. But work-life balance came up so often uh, that uh, that, that we wrote so many of those examples into the book, our editor finally said to us, okay, enough work-life balance examples, <laughs> enough of this. Um, but uh, indeed, uh, and, and so thank you. It also, we spent a lot of time, Marianne and I, at uh, different tables, uh, coffee tables, where we would sit and brainstorm trying to figure out ABCD. Um, it's, so, it's just perfect. I was like, wow, this is just, like couldn't be better. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the idea here is that um, as we brought together these tools, there's not just one tool. Uh, and we bucketed it into four categories of tools and really built the book around those categories. So, so uh, we can start with A. So it's assumptions, boundaries, comfort, and dynamics. And assumptions is where most people think, uh, no pun intended, but think. It's, it's sort of our mindsets, how we think, how our cognition, how we how we frame the problem. And here we would say that um, uh, we like to quote Paul Watzlowick, who is a, a psychologist, who said, the problem is not the problem. The problem is how we think about the problem. And, and I find myself doing this all the time. It's almost professional hazard, which is noticing how often people present us or life presents us with our tensions as an either or and invites us into, asks us almost like uh, sort of, there, there's this inertia that asks us just to make a decision between these options. And if we can pause and notice the either or question as it comes to us almost passively and actively change the question to a both and. It opens up all kinds of new creative thinking and possible outcomes. And so, you know, this just happened to me the other day. I lead a women's leadership initiative uh, at my university. And oftentimes, and my, my, my team that I lead often jokes because it will come up so often. Just the other day, we were having a conversation about our strategy. We uh, support and provide programs for students. We support and provide programs for executives and leaders in the community. And we had this either or moment. We've got limited resources. Should we be supporting students or should we be supporting and providing programs for executives? And indeed, even as resources feel limited, which is often when these either orcs come up, 
they looked at me, they rolled their eyes because they knew exactly what the next question, which would be, which is, what is the both and? What, how can we, with the resources that we have, support both the student population and the executive population? And by the way, help the students uh, learn from and engage with the executives and the executives support and enable the students so that these communities can reinforce one another. So um, I do think that shifting the question really helps uh, along the way. I'll just say one more thing, which is that I have three kids. I have uh, two 16-year-olds and an 11-year-old. And now they will say, oh, mom, but what's the both and? <laughs> of course, rolling their eyes as they do. So uh, the question can be powerful, but also uh, somewhat in a parental sense, painful. That's great. Yeah, they will come to appreciate having a world-class PhD in the house, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe not when they're teenagers. <laughs> exactly. That's great. Uh, let's talk about boundaries. Uh, and I'm curious if is a two-part question. We can kind of open up the, t- the conversation there. But have you seen this become more difficult in the era of hybrid work where I feel like when I'm working, there are days when I'm in the clinic, there's days when I'm at home. I feel like work is always with me. Have you seen that? And why are boundaries so important? Yeah, such a great question. Yes, uh, it's hard to hold boundaries when our space uh, has, when those boundaries have sort of dissolved uh, because our space has dissolved those boundaries. So indeed, um, absolutely. So when we say boundaries, we mean the scaffolding, the structures, the context that we build around us in order to hold us into both and thinking. And so that could be everything from creating the context where we have a bigger purpose, what we call a higher purpose statement that holds us into why we're doing these competing demands. It is things like we talk about the importance of separating, pulling apart, like you said, having clear boundaries on opposing ideas so we know what's at stake with each one and then finding the points of connection. Um, And hybrid work has uh, challenged that. The pandemic certainly challenged that because it was hard to create these separations and say, here's where I need to have space for this agenda, maybe my family and what they need. And here's where I need to have space for that agenda, my work and my career and what that needs. Um, And in fact, uh, one of the things that we know about boundaries is that we need to pull them apart. We need so oftentimes people will make this mistake, this sort of logical mistake that what we're trying to do is bring these things together. Let's find the the perfect integration. And just as there are false dichotomies where we pull things apart but don't see the points of integration and points of synergy, we argue that there's also false integrations where we try and lump things together, but by not understanding what's at stake for each one, we're not really getting to a better synergy. One of the sides is going to win. It's going to take over. It's going to be more powerful. So we need that pull apart, understand, distinguish in service of bringing together and finding points of connection. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. 
Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's StacksPayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving. And now, back to the program. Is there a correlation here with measurement? I'm thinking I'm, I'm, it's baseball season, so I love sports. And I'm thinking, you know, a lot of teams, uh, you know, well, obviously everyone measures every statistic in baseball. It's a very scientific sport. And one way to measure who's going to, you know, make uh, the all-star team is who's got the best batting average, who's got the lowest ERA. And another way is to ask the fans, you know, who do you like and let the fans vote. If we shift the boundaries in the business on how we measure things, I'm thinking particularly of practice owners. Is that a way we could um, be more true to this concept of boundaries? Is, is there any correlation with measurement there on how we are measuring our outcomes? Well, Dustin, you're speaking to my husband's space because he is a statistician and here we <laughs> connect. So I feel like I should you know, pull him into the conversation. <laughs> It is true that our measurement narrows us. One of the things that we know about measurement and assessment is um, that no one assessment, no one measurement tool is going to tell us all the information that we need about everything. And so we spend a lot of time arguing over how to measure uh, our outcomes and our success, whether it's in baseball or whether it's in our practice or, uh, you know, in, in our in our organizations and in our um, in our dental practices for many of your listeners or, you know, whether it's in academia, how do we measure somebody's output and effectiveness? What we know is that actually bringing together a composite, a portfolio of measurement tools is much more rich and robust because it points to different types of outcomes that can reinforce one another. So here too, I would say maybe it's not an either or, maybe there's a both and in how we think about measurement. Yeah, I love that. It's just I've I've worked with leaders who seem to have that concept of boundaries much broader, right? And I always use the water skiing analogy. They'll let you kind of swing around the front of the boat and you're kind of both leading for a moment, to borrow a phrase from a gentleman that used to work at Hallmark here in Kansas City. I I, I just lo- I love that. And it's just so succinctly dis- described in the book. I mean, all of the book is fantastic, but these tools you know, to really have a system on how to get to both and are, are fantastic. So I highly encourage everyone to get through that section. Can we move on to comfort? It's probably, I think, where I first realized that navigating paradoxes is paradoxical. Right? So like, what happens if we avoid our emotions in this process? I was like, aha, this is where the tension comes in for me. <laughs> what can we share about comfort? Yes. So comfort is the emotion side. I love that you said that we we probably repeat the refrain throughout the book. I don't know how many times navigating paradox is paradoxical. Uh, part of that is noticing, for example, that people will say, well, you just have to change your mindset. Well, we know, you know, and it's all about the head and the assumptions and our cognition. Well, we know that our cognition and our mindsets are defined by our emotions and our emotions are informed by our cognition. So it's not one or the other, it's both and in that as well. Uh, And importantly, in the both and of comfort or emotions, we talk about finding comfort in the discomfort. And here it's noticing that we can't just sweep away the discomfort. You know, what we like to do, or let me just take a step back. The reason that emotions are important is because when we are confronted with these either ors, as I said earlier, all kinds of emotions pop up. So we feel uncertain, uncertain 
It creates anxiety. It might create fear because of the unknown uh, that and when there are things that are unknown, we populate that unknown in our minds with the worst possible options. So all and it might create defensiveness. Uh, and that in part comes up. We were saying earlier that both anding is particularly poignant and relevant when you have two different people with different points of view that are coming, you know, battling with one another. And it might come up, we might get defensive that if you have a different opinion than me, I defend my point of view and, and hold tight. So all of these emotions come up. Uh, what we know from research is that if we sweep all, all of those under the rug, or let me say it differently, what we tend to want to do is just pretend they don't exist and move beyond them. Oh, I can just let go of the anxiety. I can just let go of the fear. I can stop being defensive. And that strategy often by pretending they don't exist just makes them come back even more powerfully. So yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I I love the concept of being comfortable with the uncomfortable and you, and I, I, I wrote up the margins of the book. I hope you're not offended. I even though it's a hard uh, cloth bound book, I still write all over it. And, and page 116, you talk about the difference between managers and leaders. And you say, quote, managers seek control in the face of uncertainty and leaders learn to cope, end quote. And I just that really stuck with me. And uh, I don't think I had that early in my career. I wanted to control everything when times were uncertain. And it's just such a powerful concept. I just wanted to highlight that and say thank you for including that. You're welcome. You know, thank you for saying that, because this is where um, we move from saying, oh, gosh, just change the question. It's super easy to, oh, this is a lifelong practice of consistently reminding ourselves that we can, everything will be okay if we let go, that holding on, trying to control is not about managing the situation. It's about managing our emotional experience of the situation. Huge. That's huge. That's great. Sorry to interrupt and get on a tangent, but I just, I just wanted to highlight that for the for the listeners. That's so, so great. Um, uh, can we talk about dynamics? I think this is where, for me, I started to bring everything together in the book that maybe there's things we can do to avoid falling down a rabbit hole in the first place or emerge out of it more quickly. And then finally, what is kind of that purpose of exploration in this dynamic world we live in? Yeah. Um, again, one of the reasons that paradox is hard is that they're constantly changing. So what we really want is not just to make a decision and be clear. We then want that to be stable and we want to know that we can rely on it. And this is where the control comes in. And that's not the case. So this is where I, again, offer up some empathy to the fact that living into this paradoxical world is hard. We Living on the tightrope is about constantly being vigilant in the shifting winds of the world to be responsive and be able to stay upright. Dynamics is a response to that. It says, look, even as we can put some boundaries into place, some stable boundaries, some clear long-term vision, we can you know, have some clarity in where we want to go with things. We've got to continually experiment, try new things, uh, shift our approach, explore whether the way that we've always been doing something is the way that will continue to help us go forward. And so we talk about dynamics as a set of practices that allow for this kind of change, for ongoing experimentation, for being open to serendipitous moments. You know, they talk about serendipity uh, comes to the the planned mind that we have to plan for and create the 
conditions that allow new possibilities and luck to come our way. So how do we create the conditions where we can be able to shift and to try new things along the way? And part of that is constantly being in an experimental mindset. You know, I'll tell you, I, uh, you mentioned that I am calling in from, or maybe you mentioned this, but I am calling in from Sydney, uh, where I am on sabbatical at the moment. And one great opportunity that I have as an academic is to pop up and say, gosh, what's next for me? What's the next round of research? What's the next book? What's the next leadership challenge? What am I doing next? And um, I'm not sure that I have an answer to that, but the answer for me is, okay, what small experiments can I take into a variety of different places that I am interested in moving so that I don't just have to sort of pop into an answer and all of a sudden there it is, it's ready, but that I'm trying out new possibilities of what is next for me in the next five years and can sort of shift into that through those experiments. That's huge. And I think, I mean, I'm a part-time academic, but I, I think I see this in some departments and it's so easy to kind of become that hammer where everything's a nail or it's just another iteration. I think a lot of times in like engineering or biomechanical kind of stuff in my world, it's like, let's test it with this variable. And then that variable and 20 years later, like we've only looked at one teeny tiny sliver, you know, the entire pie. Um, you give an example of that in the book. And I actually laughed out loud. I was like, oh, that's brilliant. In the creative integrations with mules, you're like, don't forget mules are infertile. You can't use them to like to solve the next problem. I thought, oh, yeah. that's brilliant. I'll remember that. So yeah. do you see that in academia where, uh, you know, it's, I guess, calm, I don't know if it's common, but is it is it easy to get maybe convinced that we could stay in one narrow focus as opposed to your approach, which is let's let's step back and ask really what's what's next in a new way thinking dynamically? Absolutely. We get so stuck in our expertise and we then rely, we lean into our expertise, which is a good thing. I mean, it's good that we have academics that have expertise in a particular area. Uh, and we, but we sort of start, sh you know, shutting out other voices because that it requires us to really try something completely new and it can be scary. It brings us back to square one. It invites us into thinking about our ways of thinking that might be wrong. And so you know, I think a great practice is to invite in colleagues that completely disagree with us and try and explore what are they saying and, you know, how, how does this shift or invite me into thinking about things in a new way? It's, a, it's challenging to do that uh, because it challenges our expertise, but, and it brings us back to this learning mentality that makes us feel like we're no longer performing. But again, how do we live into ongoing learning along the way. I mean, I think this is one of the beauties of having doctoral students and junior colleagues because they're constantly challenging the norms and bringing fresh ideas as long as we listen to them and don't try and define them and bound them too quickly. Yeah, I love I was laughing the other day with um watching the NBA finals at the time of this recording. LeBron James is like 38 and apparently he's like a quote old man in that sport. I'm going like, "Well, what other industry like, you know, in in academics or in law or medicine would a 38-year-old be, you know, deemed to be old?" And I, we were just joking saying like, "We should require that all of our leaders and our associations are actually under the age of 40. And let's just see what happens." <laughs> just, that would be wild to see to see how that uh, you know, introduced a huge paradox into most associations are very stable, very, you know, very slow moving. 
and just to rapidly introduce that amount of change would be uh, would be wild. But uh, and we yeah. see those kinds of professions. I have a colleague who's done work on musicians and dancers who um, have some sort of injury and can no longer do that that work. And really, uh, sort of high level professional musicians and dancers. We see this with with that or with with um, athletes that have really had to so focus in on their sport or their talent. But that when they're no longer able to, that that's no longer the core of their world, either because they are the old man at 38 or because they have some sort of injury and can't do it. Uh, how do they make that transition? Well, that becomes really hard for some people. We've seen many people do it really beautifully and effectively, but it requires them to give up an identity and a whole set of colleagues and friends that they and, and a set of activities. And that's where you've gone down the rabbit hole of expertise, that there's no longer that sense that I can, you know, draw on this talent for a different a different outcome. And um, so we can see that sort of rabbit holing with that kind of a population. Oh, absolutely. And highly applicable to a lot of listeners in this group where artificial intelligence is rapidly changing mm-hmm. how we move teeth with clear liners and, and 3D printed appliances. It's really amazing. So I, I think a good place to start if you're listening and you say, hey, I'm curious, you know, how will I navigate a transition or when I retire, how could I still contribute and not lose my identity or, or pivot? Uh, there's a a great paradox mindset inventory in the book. It's on page 260. I'll put a link to the tool online. You can also get that. And um, I'd love to just encourage readers to get through chapter 10. There's a wonderful kind of, I shouldn't say case study, but a wonderful example of Paul Pullman and his time at Unilever that you share that's just really inspiring. And I could talk for days and days and days, but uh, we'll post a link to Paul's book, Net Positive, about their journey from a near collapse in 2008 to really a model of sustainable business. And um, I just love, love, love your book. I do want to give readers and listeners a chance to learn more about you, what's next and where they can find you and, and follow you on social media or or get the book. So i uh, just like to leave the last few minutes for final thoughts and how we can find more about you. Great. Well, uh, we have a whole lot of resources connected with the book online at bothandthinking.net. There's more about myself and my colleague and co-author, Mary Ann. Uh, also about the book, there's a there's a book discussion guide there if anybody wants to read the book in conversation with other colleagues and think about how it applies to, to the, your work. Uh, that's up there. There's other videos. So, so that's probably the first stop to learning more about um, both and thinking and how to use the book. Um, and I welcome any you know feedback from people who are reading the book. One of the things that I find as an author is it's so rewarding when you get an email that says, here's how these ideas have struck me and what I'm doing with that. And I find it so interesting that people will hesitate to send an email like that. So I we welcome reactions, thoughts, how we can make this and, and help bring these ideas to be alive and um, relevant to people in the work that they're doing. Excellent, Wendy. Thank you for being here. Thanks for writing the book. It's brilliant. And we're so honored you got to spend some time on the program. Thank you. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for listening and joining me for another episode of the Burleson Box. I'm so honored that you're here. If you'd like to learn more about a Burleson Box subscription, go to theburlesonbox.com where you can get hand-edited transcripts, study notes, and study guides for your employees, PowerPoint presentations, live trainings and video recordings, group sessions about the books, a whole lot of great stuff we think will help you and your practice lead with excellence. Until next time, remember the words of Fran Leibowitz, who said, quote, think before you speak, 
read before you think, end quote. Take care, be well, and I'll see you right here next time inside another episode of The Burleson Box. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson.